just uh, for your information, there was something in the coffee downstairs. And so, uh, and, uh, he's, he's got issues this morning. So, um, if you, yeah, <laughs> don't need to tell them the obvious, right? Um, if you would, before we get into the sermon, if you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 shared this with the early morning service, and uh, it's a little bit of a window into what's going on in my life, and I want to share it with you this morning. Second Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. We sang a song this morning, Glorify Thy Name, <clears throat> and we went through the Trinity as we sang that song. And um, when I was living in Wake Forest going to school, I had just come back from the hospital up here at Trenton Moore, where my daddy was in a coma, and uh, some heart issues. And as soon as I got back home and was in bed, I got a phone call from my sister who needed to come back to be with the child. It was Easter morning. And after I hung the phone up, I sang that song the bed. It's all I could do. I, you know, why cry, rant, and rave when you can sing? And I sang that song, and what it helped to do is what this passage is we're getting ready to read in First Corinthians, I mean Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any troubles by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds in Christ. And I say that because we went over it, uh, Lloyd and I talked a little bit about it after the men's fellowship time this morning. Folks, don't waste your trials, Okay? They're not intended to be private if you're a Christian, if you're a child of God. They're not intended for you to keep them bottled up or hidden in a closet. God sometimes weaves the harsh threads through our fabric of our life so that we can come along and put our arm around somebody else. And I just kind of give you that as a sermonette on the front end. Don't let church get in the way of you ministering in love to other people. Having said that, good morning. Um, that's sermon number one. Here comes sermon number two. Um, there's a couple of things I wanted to mention to you. I, I meant to mention it to you last Sunday. Uh, I, I'm not a, a preacher that gets offended if you say amen or hallelujah or praise the Lord or run around the church. So if you if you feel so led, you know, I'm not going to encourage you to be throwing hymnals in the air. But, uh, you know... <laughs> And I'm certainly not asking for discord or nothing like that. But uh, one thing we at least touched on a little bit this morning in Sunday school class was why do we say, praise the Lord, hallelujah, <laughs> when it should be just worship from our very core of our essence of what God has done for us. Amen. When you look at who you were before you came to Christ, if you can't say amen, hallelujah, thank you, God, for saving me from what I was and from sin myself. And the other thing is you'll notice that I chew gum sometimes when I preach. 
reason for that is because I had a rock climbing accident, crushed my eyeball in, crushed the side of my skull in. They had to go into emergency surgery and put my skull back together. And, and doing that, it's not me being disrespectful because I am very respectful of preaching of the word, but I need to do that sometimes just to, I just need to do that. <laughs> I won't go into details, but I just, but uh, sometimes I, I remember I was, I was preaching it. Faith Baptist Church over here at Goldsboro one time for a homecoming and I was chewing gum and I got to preaching so hard and I caught it right at the front of my mouth. <laughs> I said, David, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, brother. But anyway, we're in Romans chapter 3 this morning. We're going to be discussing when the law stops you. When the law stops you. If you have found your way to Romans chapter 3, I'd ask you to stand in the honor of reading God's word, please. We're going to start in verse 19, Romans chapter 3, verse 19. And Paul says to the Romans, he says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for leaving us a record by which we can know what you, Almighty God, have done for us, sinful people. And Lord, help us not to stay in our sin. Help us not to stay harbored out there of who we were, but what we are now in Christ. Who we are in Christ. So Father, in Jesus' name, I pray your blessing not only on the reading of the word, but on the preaching of it and the hearing of it. Help me to get out of the way of it so that it will be rightly proclaimed, lives will be changed, faith will be strengthened. And Lord, I pray that you would bring peace to Israel. And I pray your special blessing on your people of Israel. That you would bring them back to you. And and their brother in Pakistan. Father, I pray that you would supernaturally put a hedge of protection around him and those others that are with him that have boldly stood in the face of the sword against all the persecution that we can't even imagine and that you would supernaturally work a work in that situation that many Muslims would come to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is Mindy's first point here is a, a major section Paul is building in the first part of Romans, his epistle. Romans is a very excellent theological treatise, and Paul here is countering some arguments he knows exist within the Jewish community. And in that community were people from the Jewish nation that put all their trust, all their hope in obedience to the ordinances, commands, and sacrifices, and all that sort of thing, thinking that made them right with God simply because God had commanded it. So what Paul does is, first of all, he deals with the notion of what we would consider today racism. 
It's not Greek. It's not Jew. It's human. So he deals with the first issue in the, in the first couple of chapters, and he's saying it's not about whether you're a Jew or not. It's not about whether you're a Gentile or even a Samaritan, which would be a half-breed Jew-Gentile. And, and for those of you, I mean, some I heard it one time, and I'll, I'll just say it while I'm thinking about it. Some folks don't even know what a Gentile is. A Gentile is somebody that's not born a Jew. So if you are not physically born a Jew, you are a Gentile, regardless of your race. But what Paul is doing here is he's already said it's not about Jew or Gentile. God is a righteous judge. He one day will exact a reckoning for you for what you have done with the deposit, what he has given you, which is your life. And specifically, what have you done with his son, Jesus Christ? And what he does in the first few chapters of Romans, and he goes through the many things that people have gone off into and have been entrapped by, whether it's sexual sin and all other sorts of immorality, but he gives a very distinct litany there of different things that people were in bondage to. But he knows that within that community, and we talked about last week about how, um, you know, that we are chained to this heart condition of false security sometimes. And writing that to the Jewish believer, they would have a false sense of security. Well, I'm a Jew. I can, I can do what I want, and it doesn't matter. But I was born a Jew. I've been circumcised the eighth day. Father Abraham, he's my father. And that's the discussion Jesus had with, with the Pharisees of the day. And he, he even goes back in time and says, you know, I, I went back to Abraham. He rejoiced to see my day. And he said, well, you're not even 40 years old. I, you know, what's up with this, Jesus? But they missed it. Here was God Almighty, the angel of the Lord of the Old Testament, standing before them physically, and they wouldn't even believe it. Paul now is, is going to, after laying out a premise to start with that it's not Jew or Gentile. It's not a special group of people that God has his stamp of approval on despite your behavior and despite your heart condition. But all are under sin. To use a, a, a naval analogy, talk, Paul begins to shoot these Old Testament torpedoes. And if you can just imagine just a steamship on the horizon and write self-righteousness right on the side of that ship. And Paul sees how he can torpedo that ship broadside to sink it, to get rid of that mentality that somehow there's going to be some remnant of people left that still think that they are right before God simply because they are Jews and simply because they are faithful to keeping the law. So what I did was I looked up the Old Testament passages that Paul talks about here in Romans. I want to give them to you, and I want you to see the torpedoes that Paul uses out of the Old Testament. You understand, Paul, as a faithful Pharisee, had to memorize the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, by heart, and all of the Psalms. So he could pull these out anytime he needed them. He was well-versed in the Scriptures. And sometimes it takes somebody of that educational stature to be able to deal with somebody else of equal educational stature to help them to see that what you've been taught has been wrong. So here we go in verse 10. 
of chapter 3 in Romans. He says, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understands, there's none that seeks after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. That came from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3, Ecclesiastes 7.20. In verse 13, he says, their throat is an open sepulcher or grave. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of ass or poisonous snake is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That came from Psalm chapter 10, verse 7. Look at verse 15 here in Romans chapter 3. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 1, verse 16. It's Isaiah 59, verses 7 through 8. And Psalm 36, 1. You see, Paul is setting up this polemic to his audience to let them understand that this, is, this problem of sin is universal. Nobody escapes this issue. Nobody. And you know, the odds are kind of stacked against us. One people and one die, right? Nobody gets out of this thing alive. Nobody. I wish it was another way, but God has made one way to get out, and that's through Christ. But what Paul does here is he sets it up and he's used one shot after another, after another, after another. Okay, self-righteous dude. You think that you are right before God? What are you going to do with your sin? Let's say that you have somebody that is brought to a courtroom and he's just murdered an elderly person. The evidence is there. He's brought before the judge, and he pleads with the judge for mercy and compassion, and he says, Your Honor, I promise from this point forward, I'll do right, I'll behave right, I'll behave right. If you tell me what to do, you tell me exactly what to do, I'll do every letter you tell me to do. I won't veer from it one bit to the day I die. And that judge decides to believe him and turns him loose. Now let me ask you, is that a good judge or a bad judge? It's a bad judge. He's not a righteous judge. But sometimes in our lives and in our mentality, people want to say, well, well you know, okay, I got it now, God. I, I really messed up my life before, but from this point forward, I'm going to do right. So if, if from this point forward, I know you're a God of love, and I know you're a God of grace. They tell me that down there at church, but I know that's what you'll do. If you'll just understand that, you know, I know I'm just made from dust, and I know that I'm a sinner. I got that now. Just, just, I'll do my very best to be a good church person. I'll do my very best. I'll give. I promise you, I'll give. I'll give to the church all the time. You know God's summation of that? In Isaiah, he equates that to filthy menstrual rags. That's a very distinct picture, isn't it? Because I don't want to, and I don't want you to, make the mistake of misunderstanding the giving and purpose and function of the law. It's not there to make you obedient to do something as if you're trying to gain some favor from God. You know, you can look at it as a two-sided coin. You can look at it and say, okay, these are the things God has, has said to do. If I do these things, then because He's the righteous judge and the lawgiver, 
then if I do these, that must please him. So, okay, I'll order my life aright and I'll begin to do these things and I'll begin to try to get these things right in my life to be pleasing to God. Preacher, just, just give me some time. I'll get my life straight and I'll try to quit smoking and I'll, I'll try to quit the drinking and I'll try to quit the cussing and the running around. And, and, and I'll come down to church sometime. I promise you I will. I promise. That's a promise you can't keep. You know why? Because inside of you is a disease called sin. And you're not going to sin apart from what's going on in your heart. You're going to sin because you are a sinner. That is your essence. And you do what you do as a person apart from God because that is what you were born into. Trespasses and sin did. Paul here is trying to get that message across to these Jews. And so he brings in an exposition of the law they're trying to keep. And it's like trying to go toe-to-toe with somebody like Ravi Zacharias or something. You just don't do that. <laughs> you know, you just, these, these excellent apologists, you just don't go there. These guys know, they'll forget more than you know. You know, like my dad used to say. But here what Paul does to start with, He looks at, first of all, the focus of the law. Look there in verse 19. He says, now we know. Get the first three words. Now we know. There was a time in Paul's life when he couldn't say that. There was a time in Paul's life when he would stand there and hold the coat of those people that picking up rocks and were killing a man named Stephen because they got so tied up in their religion that they forgot the God that sanctified the gold in the temple. And you know, that's what religion does to humanity. It drives people in the name of Allah to go out and kill people in the name of Allah thinking they're doing God a service. It drives people to do stupid things like bombing abortion clinics and places like that thinking Jesus has put his stamp of approval on it. He has not. It drives people to do insane things in the sake and the name of religion, thinking they're pleasing to God. But Paul, after he had his Damascus Road experience, he would say, Now I know. Now I don't, like I said this morning, I don't think Paul personally was making that emphasis in this text, but I wanted to bring it out. But he's saying, now we know, the Christian community, now we know whatsoever, what things soever the law says, notice the focus, it says to them who are under the law. Who would that be? The Bible says some have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says many have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have. And Paul's audience here, he just shot, uh, I think it was 14 Old Testament scriptures at this ship trying to sink the self-righteous that wanted to justify their self, saying, I'm, I'm okay with God, I'm, I'm okay with God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeks after God. There's none righteous. Get it? You know, one of the things you must do in evangelism, you can never save a person until you get that person lost. And this business of going out saying, well, if you'll just say this prayer, if you'll just give Jesus your heart, then everything will be great. 
You've got to do as the old time preachers did. You've got to dangle that person almost literally over the flames of hell and show them judgment of God is pending on your life. What did you do specifically to merit such a sentence? That's what Paul just did here. He just showed them the judgment that is to come. He held them before that bar. And he showed them very clearly, here the judgment of God is coming. But those folks might up and say, well, I'm good at this, I'm good at that. Well, look at what the law of God says. Paul says, okay, you want to use the law? Let's use the law, buddy. Let's do that. Let's take that issue up. Because that's the next argument he's understanding that's coming in this contention. So what he does is he says, the law says what? It covers, first of all, the focus is to everybody. In Ecclesiastes 7.20, it says, There's not just man upon earth that does good and sins not. We just read in Romans 3.23, or we just quoted it, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Was, was there anybody left out in that category? Not a one. In 1 Corinthians 15.56, it says, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Let me give you this illustration. If this is the judge, judge's bench and you've got the prosecuting attorney and the counselor here, evidence is brought forth on a, a particular individual. And in this particular court, the law of the land, the people of the land, have previously agreed that we're going to be governed by this particular document. We'll call it the Constitution. And by this document, in order for us to have civil obedience, and for order to us to, to, to operate as a civil society, these are the laws that's going to mitigate how punishment is done and, and how we rule and govern. And at the same time, we're also going to say, if somebody breaks these laws for each individual offense, this is the, this is the price that needs to be paid, or this is the time that needs to be served, or this is the punishment that needs to be executed out. And all the people democratically, they say, yes, we agree to that. And one is brought into the courtroom that willfully, knowingly violates that law as if to spit it back into the face of those that gave the law. And then the one stands there guilty. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? There's nothing he can do. There's no appeal he does have. The witnesses have been brought forth. The evidence has proved who he is. And the sentence is passed. At that point, you could write, no hope right across this card. That's not the case with the gospel. Because God does that exact same process with us dealing with our sin individually. And he sees you there with no hope written on your forehead. But that righteous judge, after striking the gavel and passing sentence, lays the gavel down, takes the robe off, stands in front of you, says, Bailiff, take me. Execute the sentence on me because I love this sinner. That's called substitutionary atonement. One in your place. That's called love. That's what that's called. 
And Paul is saying here the focus of the law is for all humanity. There's nobody left out, none whatsoever. The purpose of the law there in verse 19, it says that every mouth may be stopped. How is that? You're dealing with somebody that wants to justify their behavior or justify their lifestyle. You're dealing with somebody that wants to say, well, I'm okay with God. Paul is trying to deal with that very individual. I am a select group of people that God has chosen way back in Abraham's time. I'm from that lineage. I got papers, Paul. And Paul says, from the law standpoint, I had not even known what sin was but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. You see, Paul was a specialist. He specialized in being Mr. Clean. He specialized in the externals. He specialized in those things that you could see and I could see that outwardly we would think, Paul is the man. He is clean. There is nothing in the law. If anybody was going to be the clean man, it would be Paul. But inside Paul's heart, he looked at what somebody like Gamaliel, his teacher, would have. I want to be a Gamaliel. I, I want to be this, or I want to have that, where none of you can see, where I can't see, where only God can see. Down inside his heart, in those dark crevices of that deceitful heart that has so many doors and compartments, so ready to hide your sin. Oh, God doesn't see this. You can look at this. You can do this. Don't worry about it. God doesn't see any of that. That was the lie the devil told those elders that Ezekiel had to open the brick wall up and look in that God sent him there. He said, Look at what they're doing, Ezekiel. You want to know why I'm sending them off to Babylon? Look at what they're doing. Even with that, the people wouldn't turn back. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 8, it says, But we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. How do you use the law lawfully? You take a person through the law. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 4. And it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Things you've not even done yet. Because God knows the bend in you. He knows you are a sinner in your heart. And look at verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God doesn't see your sin. God doesn't see what you look at on the internet at night, sir. He sees this. God doesn't see how you cheat somebody, what you think in your heart about another woman, what you covet after, another husband, something else, another lot in life. You can even covet somebody else's physical health. 
don't mean to be harsh. But God says that the purpose of the law is to stop the mouth. He says His Word is quick and powerful. Let's see if it's quick. The Ten Commandments, what's the first one? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. The second one. Thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven image. What is the third one? Thou shalt keep the Sabbath day holy. No, you go to the main thing, I'm sorry. The fourth one is thou shalt keep the Sabbath day. What is the fifth one? Honor your father and mother. Children, clothes. What is the sixth one? Thou shalt not kill. What's the seventh one? Thou shalt not commit adultery. What's the eighth one? Thou shalt not steal. What's the ninth one? Thou shalt not bear false witness. You should know these. How do you know if you're violating them if you don't know them? What's the tenth one? Thou shalt not covet anything that is thy neighbor. Jesus says, if you look upon a woman to lust after in your heart, you have already committed adultery. You just don't have the opportunity to get away with it. If you hate somebody in your heart, it's the same as if you murdered that person. You just do not have the opportunity to get away with it. If we were to remove all judicial uh, ramifications of you acting upon the motives in your heart, would you do them? If somebody irritated you in your life, would you kill them if there were absolutely no consequences to bear on it? Not even shunning from your family. Yes, we would. You know why? Because we're sinners. We're trapped in a tornado of sin that we cannot get out of this cyclone. And that's exactly the argument Paul is trying to make to these self-righteous Jews. He's trying to make it to us today. We have got to understand that sin has got us. It permeates every atom of our being. He said, I know that in me, in chapter 7 of Romans, I know in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Anybody that thinks that there is an atom of goodness in you that merits any favor from God is deluded and deceived. I went through that. I was raised at First Baptist Church in Scotland Lake from a good family. Oh, Robbie, you can do whatever you want to, man. You got it on the ball, brother. You can go to any school you want to. I couldn't. You could go to any school you want to, man. You can accomplish whatever you want to, buddy. Just go for it. And, buddy, I did. I tried. You know what happened? It deceived me. By it slew me. And it just exacerbated my sinful condition. It just showed to everybody what was really inside of Robbie. What's really inside of you is the same thing that was really inside of me and every human being. It's called sin. And Paul here is trying to help folks see, just like we just went through the Ten Commandments, none of us, did anybody here make it all the way through the first five? The first one? 
know. So Paul, in his argument, he's trying to prove and that the law's purpose is just to show, which he's going to get to the very next part. He says that all the world might become guilty before God. You see, the, the purpose of the law is not for you to try to fulfill it and then buy it some kind of mentally emotional bend in your mind. Think, I am pleasing to God because I've done some fraction of the law. James says, if you infract or break one part of the law, you broke it all. The whole codified book, you, you messed it all up. And if from this point forward, you were perfect. What are you going to do about your past? You are accountable for your past. Despite what this world wants to do today in the move in this country is to blame somebody else. Well, it's George Bush's fault. It's my mama's fault. It's my daddy's fault. There might be some consequences that come because of other people's decisions. But who made you decide to hate? Who made you decide to lust? Who made you decide to covet? Who made you decide to worship something else? Who made you decide to be disobedient to your parents? Who made you decide to commit adultery? Your sin nature made you decide that. And that's the very essence of what Paul is saying. The law is a mirror. James would say this. The law is a mirror to show you exactly who you and I are. And it shows me that in me, that is in myself, I can put up every castle, every wall I want to in my life, but I'm telling you, I'm here to tell you, it all falls before the holy standard of Almighty God. If I were to put just one of my things I thought I did pretty good in life, beside the holy standard of God. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3 for a minute more quickly. And wrap this up. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. I'm in Galatians 3.21. No, chapter 20, verse 21. Yeah. For if there had been a law given, which could have, had been a law given, which could have given life, eternal life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. And notice the but that turns the corner. But Scripture has concluded or trapped or imprisoned all under sin that the promise of by faith of Jesus Christ might be given, not earned, given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, our tutor, to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So what is the purpose of the law? The, the, the verdict of the law is that we're guilty. 
I'll stand guilty before a holy God. So what is that purpose? Okay, you've proved me guilty. You, you've beaten me down, preacher. You've beaten me down with Scripture. Okay, why? I didn't need that. I knew that before I came in here. Because the law is a schoolmaster. What does a schoolmaster do? It teaches you something you don't already know for your good. The law says you don't have a hope in and of yourself. Philippians 3, 9. And to be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. There are two righteousness in this, earth, in this life. What you seek to attain by deeds that you do in whatever religious system you want to use, there is a type of righteousness that you can attain to. But you have to lay that righteousness beside the holy, perfect righteousness that Jesus Christ attained. To start with, He was born without sin. Were you born without sin? To sec secondly, He lived a sinless life. Have you lived a sinless life? Third, He offered on your behalf clean blood for somebody else. You ready to give your dirty blood? You can't give your dirty blood because God's economy works on blood. He says the life is in the blood. He says the wages of sin is death. When I sin, one sin, the penalty is passed on me. You're guilty, Robert. And I merit damnation. Actually, theologically, to be correct, the sentence was on me before I ever committed it because I was born in trespasses and sins. Right? Some of you seminary boys should have caught me on that one. I, I'm messing around with you. And when I had no hope written across me, you know what God did? He said, but I've made a way. That law that just condemned you is also going to take you by the hand. Just like in the Old Testament tabernacle economy, you get this because the Old Testament reveals the New Testament. The sinner came with a sacrifice in hand, already made the willful decision. I am a sinner. I've been proven a sinner by the law. Now I'm coming to the curtain of the tabernacle. I walk into the curtain of the tabernacle. There I stop because now I can go no further. A priest must go before me. He gives his sacrifice, whatever it was, whatever the law dictated, he gave that sacrifice to the high priest. The high priest killed the animal. The, 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 the just or the innocent for the guilty. You understand? Now he caught the blood of that animal, and he had to take that animal's blood into the presence of Almighty God, where the sinner had to stay outside. He could not go. The Old Testament wasn't just a tent that Moses cooked up in his mind. God gave him the pattern of what in reality is in the Holy of Holies in heaven itself. And he gave that pattern to Moses as best man could conform to it. And he said, make this pattern, Moses, exactly the way I tell it to you because it is the only way I'm going to let sinful man come into my presence in this life until I send my son, Jesus Christ, to wipe away all sin. And then anybody can come, not by ceremonies and sacrifice, but by faith and commitment 
in their heart, wherever they are, never having to deal with the temple again. And Paul says, that's why the law has been set aside. Now you're free to serve in grace. Now you're free to live and be the person God called you to be. It's regardless of your race. It's regardless of your standing. Now God Almighty has made you free. Live free and tell somebody else about it. So now why do you not go on missions? Now why do you not tell people about Jesus Christ? Now why is your church not on fire to go out and compel people to come into the knowledge of Jesus Christ and what's happened with Him? But you know, I went and saw that movie the other night called Courageous. It's made by the folks who made Fireproof and Flywheel. There was a point in that movie, and I told my wife, it just really hurt my heart to hear this guy say this. But one of the guys in a gang was caught he was sitting in the back of the patrol car. I'm not going to spoil the movie for you. I'll just tell you this part. But he was caught and he was back at the patrol car, had the handcuffs on him. And he really didn't want to be a part of this gang. It was just, he didn't have any family or anything. And the patrolman opens the door and he says, I don't know what his name was, Ricky or Eddie or whatever it was. He said, man, what you doing here? And that guy looked at him and he said, I got nobody. You know, in this life, we can look at our spouses and our children, but you know something? When you look up into the face of God, without Christ, you've got no hope. You've got no hope. I mean, what are you, you going to do? You don't have any hope. Don't you think that the Creator, Almighty God, who knew the end from the beginning, who knew that Jesus was going to make Jesus the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. He was going to make this way through which His Son could come into the future. And at that specific point in time, when the prophecies were right, when the time was right, He would send His Son to die for the sins of all the world, not just the Jews. And the Jews were given the oracles of God to tell other people about Almighty God. But what did they do? They went out into the land and they took the practices and religious practices of the land and they perverted them even worse than they did to where the people of the land were even astonished at how horrible and wicked the Jews were because they were so vile and wretched a people. And God said, you have become a stench in my nostril. You have become ashamed in my name. And the only way I'm going to deal with this is I'm going to let the people of this land know that it is not because their God was stronger than me, but because you have violated my holiness, and therefore I am taking you out into captivity. But I promise you in that captivity, I'm bringing you back. And God kept His remnant. God kept His promise. He brought those people back. And the knee-jerk reaction they had to it, well, we're going to be really good Jews now. And they took the law and they abused it. What are you going to do with it? Go to people say, if you die today, you know you'd go to heaven. Well, I'm trying to live the best I can. And about that? And about that? What Jesus die for if you're trying to perform as best you can? What's up with that? I mean, I don't. What are you going to do with Jesus in this whole mix? We just read it. If if there was a law given by which you could attain eternal life, then verily Christ died in vain. And the whole essence of church is not about checking off some religious duties that you do. 
It's not about you going through a litany of things that you feel like that the God in your mind that you've created that you might particularly want to call Jesus or God or Almighty or whatever idol you've put in your mind other than the God of the Bible. That God might say, do this whole list of things. This God says, come to me as you are. And I will make you clean. We're as the people of God to be fishers of men. The Holy Spirit of God cleans the fish. That's the sanctification. Do things disappear in our life when we become Christians? Absolutely, they should. Is it my business to stick my bony, crooked finger in your face? There comes a time, and I hope this is the heart of Hills Hills Chapel Baptist Church, where the church has to be about the business of compassion. The church has to be about the business of reaching out to the community and saying, you know, I don't care if you get me dirty. Let me tell you about Jesus. I don't care what it costs me. Can I tell you about Jesus? We've got people in our church that have walked the very path you're on right now and we're at the same logical conclusion about God you are right now. And they met Jesus. Did their life get hunky-dory? No. But God, now because He takes His child by the hand, instead of walking as your judge, can walk as your paraclete the one alongside and help you. So just like we read at the very beginning, he that comforted you, you can comfort somebody else. You know, I'm not interested in doing church. Personally, it makes me sick. I wasn't raised in church committees and stuff like that. I was in the logwood. I didn't learn to do church. I just showed up when Mama woke me up and made me go. But you know, in that school of time, I learned that as a teenager, I don't want to go to church. And they didn't do everything right at First Baptist. They still don't. They don't. Y'all don't do everything right here. If you did. We all have to get out of the building, right? <laughs> Those humans mess it up. But I knew back then I know what I did last night. I, I don't know. There was just a sense about it. Is there a sense about your life individually that when you walk into whatever environment, the dirty jokes stop. The gossiping stops. Is there a sense about you that people would even persecute you or even rail against you because of your faith? Because they hate to be reminded that there is a righteous God. You know, that's the basis of evolution. They don't want to answer to a holy creator. 
They want to say, I'm just a bag of chemicals. That there's nobody to answer to. But God says, just so that you know, I'm righteous. That I'm just not willy-nilly. I'm not capricious in my judgment. I have a law. And by that law, I will judge you with two or three witnesses. Who's going to make it through that judgment alone? Nobody in this room. But there's coming a day. The devil can stand there at God's judgment day of me and he can look at me and he can bring up everything from my stinking past for the first 30 years of my life and he can throw mud all he wants to and Jesus is going to open the book. Say, Michael, open that book, see what you got on Robbie Dunn over there. And he said, I don't find nothing what the devil's saying. He said, why is that? Because there's blood stains on his first page right here. Can't find nothing on Robbie before that. You understand what I'm saying? It's Gone. Not covered. Hello. That means it still is. It's gone. Your sin is gone. Don't be bound to the past. Paul here has given as clear an exposition of the use of the law as he possibly can. What I've tried to do this morning is to help you to see how that law works out in your life. And I don't know what God's doing in your heart right now. I don't know if you're bound up and beat up by who you used to be before you were a Christian. There's some of you that need to be unshackled today. There's some of you that need to be able to look at yourself as God sees you now. You are His child. And I'll tell you for probably two or three years of my Christianity, as a man, it took me a while before I could even say, I love Jesus. Because I thought there were some issues going on. I won't go any further than that. I just felt like it was wrong to say him as a man saying he loves another man. But I'm telling you, this morning, we're going to have a hymn invitation. And I'm going to ask you whether you've got to sit right there, whether you need to come up here and do business, whether you need to talk to me or Lee or whoever. I'm going to ask you this morning to put your church and knees aside. Put your, put your religiosity down. And come and embrace this God that's made such a wonderful way for us to have fellowship with Him. We're going to stand and sing. If you would stand, please. If you need to come and do business with God, I'm going to ask you to come quickly this morning. Yeah.